0: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? At the end of last year, some thought that the Chinese economic recovery after three years of zero COVID could happen just as fast as zero COVID itself ended. I admit that included me. And yet, more than halfway into 2023, that recovery looks increasingly elusive. The Chinese economy has failed to shake off its own long COVID, while other structural problems have reared their heads. What does the future hold for the economy? Is this the new normal? And if so, is that a problem? Or is there a different way forward for China? I'm joined on this episode by the economist Ke Yu Jing, author of the New China Playbook, Beyond Socialism and Capitalism. Yu is an associate professor at the London School of Economics and has advised and consulted for the World Bank and the IMF. She has also divided opinion. Unlike some other English language economists, she is sympathetic to the Chinese political and economic structure, arguing, as you'll hear in this episode, that Chinese state intervention can often be virtuous, that the Chinese people value stability over liberty. On the episode, I challenged these views, and you might find yourself disagreeing with some of them too, but whatever you might think of a political stance, it's interesting to hear why an economist educated in the West might have such a different perspective. First, I started by asking her to carry out a stock take of the Chinese economy. I think it's worth saying that we first spoke in June. Since then, China's second quarter economic data has been released, showing that exports have declined over 10% year-on-year. Inflation has flatlined, meaning that the country may head into deflation territory. And in the same month, shares in Chinese property developers fell sharply as the credit crisis in the industry continued. In other words, it's got even worse. This is my conversation with Ke Yu Jing. Ke Yu, welcome to Chinese Whispers. I want to start by taking stock of the Chinese economy. It's now half a year since the sudden end of zero COVID. How would you assess the state of the economic recovery so far?
1: Well, there has been some recovery, but the recovery has been less than what people would have hoped for. Indeed, what the world could have hoped for. I think it has a lot to do with the scarring effects of the pandemic, but really just the pandemic. You think about the real estate sector and the fact that they have contributed to broadly speaking a third of the nation's GDP. Now they're downsizing. What other sectors can you possibly find to replace property sector in terms of its GDP contribution and also employment? It's very difficult to do in the short run. And of course, there's also a confidence issue Household income has significantly stalled uh, during the pandemic, and uh, businesses are uh, finding their profitability extremely problematic. So all of this combined has reduced confidence levels in the Chinese macroeconomy. And uh, that is explaining why we're seeing pretty lackluster recovery, even if on the macro, you look at some numbers that could be promising, they are not really signaling a real strength of the economy. But there's stuff to do, you know, the cost of capital is so high for these private companies, because of layers of layers of financial intermediaries. And when it actually gets to the real economy, the cost of capital is high. But there's space, there's a lot of space to improve. And I don't agree with this notion that China's economy has peaked, or it's like the Japan of the
0: 1990s in the last decade. But in the short run, there are serious problems. Mm -hmm. And when you look at Q1 figures, for example, growth was 4.5%, which was more than I think some people were expecting. And you had a lot of um, Chinese state media really kind of cheering that on celebrating that but from what you say it sounds like actually underneath that headline figure there's still a lot of uncertainties isn't there
1: yes if you look at the macro numbers it could be driven by infrastructure spending large investments But at the micro level, the private sector is still lacking confidence. And you can see that demand is very weak in China, which is why we're seeing low inflation numbers, potentially even deflationary environment.
0: Mm -hmm. And is that from a lack of confidence caused by the zero COVID, especially in the last year of the zero COVID? I mean, the first two years were slightly different. But in the last year of zero COVID, the uncertainties, the sudden lockdowns, is it caused by that, the repercussions of that still? Or are there other more deep reasons as well?
1: pandemic has really passed us in a psychological sense. And I don't think people expect uncertain policies around the pandemic going forward. But it's a general level of uncertainty, the regulatory crackdowns Mm. on the Chinese companies, the geopolitical factors, the fact that, uh, you know, if you look at savings rate, it's hit 50%. That just indicates precautionary saving. So a lack of confidence uh, to the future. Not necessarily having specific reasons, but uh, you know, private businesses again—they they should be doing the heavy lifting, undertaking the investment, and they're also very very restrained because of the
0: reduced profitability. So I think there are a lot of factors mm. explaining this. So the government has a GDP growth target this year of five percent. Do you think it's on track to meet that? I think it's possible.
1: I think it would be not surprising if it undershoots or it hits oh, really? target. You can do only so much with stimulus for the longer term sustainable recovery, not just in terms of discretionary service or May holidays. You need more than what the government is willing to do.
0: And I just wondered more about the long term impact of zero COVID. You you say that, you know, obviously the uncertainty is gone. Everyone in China knows that zero COVID is not happening anymore. But when you look at countries like the UK, for example, we're seeing so many of our economic problems at the moment, almost coming as the aftershocks of the pandemic and arguably of the lockdowns. What are the equivalent factors for those in China? You know, what is the long term economic cost of zero COVID?
1: Well, before I I talk about zero COVID aftermath, because I think China is still really starting to realize some of these things are starting to manifest itself. I think there's an equally if not more important in terms of factor driving the restructuring of the economy. Mm. So It's been a few years, but there are visible signs of how difficult it is to restructure away from credit-driven, manufacturing, capital-intensive, large-scale investments to renewable energy and high-tech, these inevitably very important for the Chinese economy going forward, but whose contribution to the economy in the short term is very hard to see. And also in terms of providing employment, these are really good for the long term, but they're not mm. going to be able to replace property or some of the education companies in terms of short-term effect. So I think that is really driving a lot of what's going on. The scarring effects from the pandemic might be there, especially given that you know household income growth has been very weak. But I, I think that we're, we've already seen kind of the decline in energy even before the start of the pandemic.
0: Mm. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, the property market, for example, was already one that was showing up trouble. I think it's extremely important, if not more important, the aftermath.
0: And just on that, has the crisis in the property market been stemmed? I mean, it doesn't seem as urgent a situation as it was maybe last summer, for example. Yes, I, I think there's very little risk of a contagion or a financial crisis
1: that would be involved to in the property sector. We're probably going to see a lot of property developers really disappearing, if you will, because it's going to drive out a lot of these um, on the investment side, on the the developer sides. But I think it's... So by disappearing, you mean that the companies will fail? Yeah, they will fail and a lot more consolidation Mm -hmm. and the ones who can survive will survive. But to note that the demand for property is still there uh, in China. I think there's um, it's weaker than we might hope for, but uh, the urbanization is not done and everybody wants to have an apartment or a flat in the, in the city. And then um, I joke about this, but it's not a joke. It increases your uh, eligibility as a bachelor. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Except there's only one problem when people don't want to get married anymore, then the incentive is, is a lot weaker to invest in property. We've seen only 7.6 million new marriages registered in 2021 out of hundreds of millions of millennials, that is. But in the past, it was really important to own your property. So I think it's just an adjustment of the supply and demand side over long
0: term with a new price equilibrium. Mm -hmm. and looking forward then looking ahead you know some economists look at this year and say five percent if it can reach that would be a post-covid bounce and it would be good growth but i mean that's also not compared to what it used to be 10 years ago when it was about 10 percent. but even looking ahead there are some economists saying that china can only expect two or three percent growth on an annual basis would you agree with that do you think the days of china's kind of super high growth are over
1: i think it's a It's a matter of choice rather than ability. And if you wanted to say, look, can China reach 5%, even potentially higher growth by doing some of the old things they used to do, the stimulus, the cheap credit, the inflation of certain sectors, then it's it's possible, right? But it is not one of the choice sets uh, of the government anymore because they're deliberately trying to put pressure on the financial system not to lever up, not to inflate the property sector again, not to use these quick fixes as um, an instrument of last resort. And they're deliberately choosing to focus on things like renewables and high tech because the growth rate just doesn't matter as much as it used to be. So it's not just about GDP. It's not about the GDP growth anymore. This is actually what charged the local officials in the past to make sure that the GDP growth rates are are met. If you look at the potential, look, you know, there's 600 million Chinese who haven't reached middle income by international standards there are, uh, there's a service sector that's only about half of uh, GDP, unlike in US and Japan, 80% of GDP. There are lots of distortions where there could be reforms, like the impediments to movement of both goods and people within China that can really boost productivity. All of that really makes a lot of sense in the mm-hmm. current context, if it could be done, maybe it's a political issue, maybe it's a, a political blockage. But So it's not to say that China doesn't have the potential to reach these growth numbers, but it's opting for a low growth rate And instead adopting what in its view, the government's view, is higher quality and more critical because of Chinese security, let's say, focusing on critical components and high tech rather than the easy way out. Mm -hmm. And this
0: is what you mean when you talk about the
1: new China playbook in your book. The New China Playbook represents something broader than an economic agenda or a policy goal. It's to say, look, there's a new generation that will shape the contours of China's political economy and pretty much everything, right? Because they are a very new, different generation compared to the past, those born after the 1980s, after the one-child policy, but especially those uh, born in the 1990s and 2000. They're radically different from uh, their parents' generation who have been through, you know, huge vicissitudes um, in China. And then the new playbook is about a different objective, right? Mm -hmm. A different set of goals, uh, maybe a softer metric to development. But to highlight that in the book, it is to explain that the system is going to be the same, the same political economy system that lots of people get wrong or do not understand, will stay. Even if some of the priorities change from, uh, you know, smokestack industries now to uh, high tech and technology, from GDP numbers to a higher quality of growth, upgrading your value chain, from a higher income to a better environment, better social communities and food security for for your children. The society is changing, it's evolving Instead, we tend to, uh, in the West, focus on many things about the old playbook. We're still thinking about China's forced technology transfers, or the violations in the WTO system, or its uh, past uh, objectives and playbook and method. Then we're focusing on the wrong things because mm-hmm. China has already moved on. Okay. Uh, but really, to explain that the system, which is so unique in the world, this political centralization but economic decentralization, where you have have this very vibrant interaction between local officials and the and the entrepreneurs on the ground level is something that is very unique and important to understand. Even if there are there are new models, new changes, new objectives, the
0: system is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And I'm intrigued by your focus on generations here. You know, you talk about people born after the 1980s. But those people are not on the top of the Chinese political system at the moment. So why, why would you focus on that kind of, you know, as it were, millennial generation and onwards why to you do you think that they are the key to understanding the new playbook because they will be on the top of the political leadership but are they driving? i mean if, if, if is president xi jinping talking about high quality growth at the moment why link that to the priorities of the millennial generation
1: because it's also consistent with the new generation, or broadly speaking. Let's just look at their experience. So first of all, not necessarily those born in the 80s, but this is already the beginning, much more privileged, confident. Many of them have studied in the West, so they're mm-hmm. fluent with different kind of cultures. They have a certain level of soft power, and their ability to communicate with the rest of the world is better. But they also want more things than just a higher income growth or GDP uh, they're seeking for more social equity, justice. Mm-hmm. They they observe the West, especially look at a country like the U.S., and you see this massive inequality, the large social divisions, and the problems of liberal democracy. Rightfully or wrongly, they look at that, and they don't necessarily want it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not really a paragon of inspiration for this new generation. And then post-90s and 2000s are even a bit more different, but I would say, the radical break is those with the post-80s. And there's a certain level of continuity. But I think if you look at the new political generation as well, they are more confident about China. Again, rightly or wrongly, they see China's innovation, they see China's growing power in the world, especially economic power. And uh, they think that China should have a greater say. But I think there's a chance that they would be able to iron out some of these mega differences between the West, maybe communicate better and more transparency uh, in helping the world understand China better Mm. and avoid these deep misunderstandings that could lead to danger.
0: Yeah, I'm not seeing that in today's Chinese political leadership at the moment. Well, they're
1: a bit too young right now. If you're talking about
0: people in their early 40s, they're not going to
1: be in the top leadership. But if you think they're going to skip the generation of the 70s, they're not going to skip the generation of the 80s. Mm-hmm. They will be on the top of the political ladder. You mean after
0: Xi Jinping? Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned just now that uh, the West still gets the Chinese economy wrong, that it's still picking up the things of the old playbook, as you call it, uh, the smokestack uh, factories and forced technology transfer. So, If it's not about those things anymore, and you are someone in the West who is still concerned about China's rise, what are the areas that you should be looking at? What is related to the new playbook now?
1: I think it's really difficult to take on China as a real competitor, even rival, without hurting yourself. Whether we like it or not, whether we admit to it or not, it's going to have huge economic consequences on both sides or the, mm-hmm. for the whole world. Just look at supply chains. We are deeply embedded, all of us together. And China, half of China's trade is involved in global supply chains. Uh, so first of all, there's an impossibility and feasibility of really trying to oust China from the global supply chain. And even if it were to diminish or reduce some of its participation, the absolute amount of cost pressure on the economy, global economy, is huge. We've already seen, yes, the factory from can move uh, from Taiwan to the U.S., but the raw costs are already 30% higher. So I think that's something to look out for, is that the damage will be really felt everywhere. I think the things to look are places where it would benefit everybody by pushing China to change on some of the behavior economic behaviors for instance, the forced technology transfers, there should be you know pushback on that but really again that's not so relevant anymore because the domestic competition China is so fierce that intellectual property protection has to, actually be stronger, even for its own sake. And that would be good for foreign companies as well. And you see it moving in that direction. You see it moving, but implementation is really quite another thing, Mm. right? I think there's real intent, real seriousness on the governmental level, central governmental level and local governments are setting up lots of ministries of supervision and implementation, but it's going to take time. And the cultural... Mindset and mentality, but again, I think intellectual property is something that you can really ask China to to be serious on. But I don't think that these theories of trying to hold China down fits
0: with a liberal a democracy agenda, moral agenda at all. I mean, I think we're past that stage now. It's a new problem, you know. I think that politicians in the US or UK or other Western nations will say that they are, you know, still believe in perfect freedom and liberal democracies and all that sort of stuff. But I think for them, China kind of lies almost outside of that. You know, you say that it will cost economically these countries to decouple, de-risk, whatever you want to call it. But the the calculus is that you have to do this, otherwise China will be a much bigger problem down the line. So it's not in pursuit of liberal democracy that this is happening, but it's in pursuit of, I guess, a U.S.-led world order.
1: No, this is actually not what I'm saying. What, just to clarify, the policies that are trying to hold down China economically means that unless they believe that three quarters of the world population should be living in poverty without a way out. I don't see any moral rationale behind this argument that fits with any liberal democracy moral standpoint. I'm not saying that the U.S. wants to carry out more liberal democracy agenda. It's just this is so unbefitting of the general broad idea that people should have the right to be richer, just like the U.S. Mm -hmm. has the right to protect its key industries, yeah. the Chinese have a right to become more prosperous as people. It's kind of ironic that the US always asks, oh, but is the Communist Party intervening with the with the companies, right? But then it's the U.S. government telling companies that you can't invest in China, whether you're funds or you know managers or even now financial institutions. This has nothing to do with national security. And I understand that there are specific national security areas where it is a concern that the government will want to keep a very close tap on. But if you're telling the American companies they can't go make money in China or invest in China, that to me seems like a lot of interaction.
0: <laughs> right? I think I think you do see in a lot of ways in which the West becomes more like China or more authoritarian yeah. in its bathroom against China but the point about you know state intervention is a good one and actually it's a key linchpin of your book because the reason that you say that the West doesn't understand the Chinese economy is that state intervention. The role of the state in the Chinese economy. So necessarily, the Chinese state has a huge, massively bigger role in the Chinese economy than the American. So the comparison is just not not that. You know, when when the US says we can't trust your average Chinese company or we can't trust your average Chinese consumer to get richer, it's not because for moral reason. It's because they're worried about the CCP behind well, it. Well, this is
1: exactly what I try to spell out in the book, which is the kind of state intervention we're talking about is not at all what people expect in the West. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about subsidies, they're far and few between now because, first of all, that's also part of the old playbook. The pure financial subsidies are withdrawn to a large degree because, first of all, you know, just practically speaking, the local government coffers are, are empty after COVID. It's actually the ways in which governments should be enabling entrepreneurs that is very much central to this model, and which I describe in the book. For instance, they're building mini Silicon Valleys by helping mm. them attract talent, build industrial clutter, make sure that there's an entire supply chain around a battery maker. Again, not financial investment per se. They have a cap on how much equity they can uh, own or not own. And these uh, bonuses and tax reductions are in- all incentives that American governments do. I mean, American government subsidies to these companies are actually really huge but, and the Europeans would come out to lecture about the U.S. on the same <laughs> issues. So I, I want to say that it's not the financial subsidies. It's about mobilization. It's about coordination. It's about jump-starting a whole industry. If you think about the EV sector, mm-hmm. um, there are 4 million EV chargers installed all around China. That's going to help the, boost the demand and the entire industry. But in the U.S., is only 140,000. Right. So that kind of state intervention
0: is not the ones that the U.S. can quibble about instead. But what about, um, I mean, maybe the U.S. is too much on the other extreme. I mean, if you look at Europe, for example, you know, state intervention is not the same as in China. And yet infrastructure in public transport, including charging points, is much, much easier to do because the political culture is still different without going into the authoritarian nature of of China's... uh, I don't think that we can call any kind of economic model
1: authoritarian without understanding what it really means. Again, if you look at the data... There are like 30 million private enterprises. The Communist Party is very busy with their own agenda. They don't make strategic financial decisions on behalf mm-hmm. of these companies. If that were the case, these non-experts making these strategic decisions, then if I were an American, I have nothing to worry about. right? It's that kind of that model where they help entrepreneurs overcome a lot of barriers. Okay, maybe you can say that U.S. has fewer barriers because it's a more mature economic environment, business environment, same thing in the U.K. But in China, as a developing country or other developing countries, there are huge amounts of barriers, institutional deficiencies, financial system incompleteness. If you look at China, only 10% of aggregate financing goes directly to, is from direct financing like capital markets, which means that these smaller companies don't have the chance to access credit and this is a common feature of developing countries what happened to other developing countries they get stuck mm-hmm. in china these local governments will help you overcome that by uh, either helping you coordinate some financing or leveraging social capital by saying look you know this is uh, we're going to help you uh, attract talent we're going to build this entire supply chain around you and that will get the business working for you that's that's the right kind of state intervention it's not bad actually lots of other countries should do more with it now the bad kind of state intervention where you're uh, intervening with key core decision makings. I agree. That should be really down to zero. But we also have to see China as an evolving thing. And that model is changing all the time. So the state is now stepping back because, you know, initially they started to invest directly in these companies and that didn't work because they didn't know how to pick out the winners and they weren't experts. And so now they're leveraging, you know, they're kind of helping asset managers and fund managers, venture capitalists who know much more and have them do more of the work. Mm -hmm. So it's all that iteration. So the the problem is that we have a very reductionist view of what the state model looks like in China. It's not all bad. It's actually something that lots of other countries could use. But the really intervening aspects... China's also changing too.
0: Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in what you're saying about this environment that the government can build for entrepreneurs, because, you know, going back to that confidence point that we were talking about earlier, how do you see the role played by politics in its purest sense of the word? I don't just mean politics in the economy, but just politics, as in, you know, in the last few years we've had, we've already mentioned zero COVID, which was a very bad time for businesses, especially small and medium-sized businesses. We've also got just a very kind of... um, how can I put this CCP approach to certain infringements in, let's say, the financial sector or the tech sector, you know, the, the way that the Jack Ma was pretty much, you know, told to be quiet, or or the way that Buffen, um that uh, financier, leading tech financier, is still disappeared. All of these things contribute to an environment surely where entrepreneurs don't actually know if the state has their back. And if anything, they're worried if the state has too much attention on them.
1: For sure. I mean, that has caused uncertainty and that has uh, had a psychological consequence. But of course, you know, you got to think about these tens of millions of entrepreneurs and their mentality and also young generation entrepreneurs want to be. They will think in their head, well, maybe I don't have to be the tallest tree that attracts the most wind. I can still do my thing and still be a millionaire or even potentially a billionaire without attracting too much attention or putting more emphasis that's in line with the party uh, social agenda and contributing more or doing more for social. It's like a tax, right? It's a, it's a heavy tax on the companies, but does that mean these entrepreneurs are going to give up the China market? Well, where else are they going to go to have an equally promising career? Now, you can say that some will have options, but Lots of them will still think about China as the biggest market for them, and the ones where they're locally have the most advantage, rather than going abroad. And they'll still work, just like if you hit, you know, the the likes of Bill Gates with a high tax rate, they're not unmotivated, uh, and they're also thinking to themselves, well, you know, with fewer of these monopoly platforms around, and that gives me a better chance to succeed. Again, not aiming for the top, you don't get that much attention. So I agree. Yes, this. To the outside looks this totally spooks confidence you know if you're in the west uh, as an entrepreneur you'd feel very almost violated if you if you hear about these stories but the chinese have gone through 40 years of radical policy changes and uncertainty all the time and the ones that make it are the ones that are agile the ones that know how to navigate the deep uh, policy and political waters Again. I don't think it's a good thing for China. I think it's actually quite detrimental. But it's also wrong to assume that this is going to kill the motivation of the entrepreneurs.
0: Mm-hmm. And Koyi, if you were the one then um, creating economic policy for China, you know what would be the major, let's say, three big things that you would fix? Well, the first is I'd start with
1: the financial system. It's like the last dinosaur in the Chinese economy waiting to be reformed. But never willing to be you know, p- pulling that trigger because it's about seeding control. But if China wants to really enter the new era with a new playbook and uh, have these technology uh, super companies, the financial system has to be resolved because that's what spurs innovation. In What's wrong end. with it at the moment? Right now, the... Smaller, medium-sized companies or the startups don't have access to financing, reliable, long-term financing. The cost of capital is really, really high because the financial system is such that state banks tend to lend to large state companies or companies that have already made it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you typically rely on either venture financing or capital markets to help these younger firms grow. That's very, very critical. And that's quite lagging. Um, There was a very vibrant venture capital uh, market in China, so that, that was very helpful but you need reliable long-term funding for uncertain outcomes. And uh, second, I worry about the youth, high youth unemployment. I'm not so worried about the demographics, which is about aging in the long term, but really the media short-term pressure is why with a college degree, 25% of these very productive and smart students don't have a job. Mm. And that can really cause social stability concerns and longer-term concerns if there's really a turn towards pessimism. I mean, this is the best years of their life to not be able to have a job after college just is really quite devastating for them and for their families so but at the same time it's not the jobs are not available there are 300,000 jobs will, uh, left to be filled every year in semiconductors 25 to 30 million jobs in manufacturing yet to be filled. So it's this mismatch of your skill and the opportunities out there rather than an unavailability of jobs. So I'd fix that. And How heard. would you fix that? More vocational training? Or? Yes, vocational training is very important. You have to raise the status of vocational jobs because these highly technical manufacturing workers need the right training, but they're also not perceived to be a white-collar job. And so if there's a lot of discrimination against against from a societal, civil level, then it's not going to work. Uh, I'd also expand the service industries, which actually absorbs a huge part of the highly educated labor force. Actually, 30% of uh, service workers have college degrees, unlike manufacturing, where there's only 12% with college degrees or equivalent bachelor degrees. So that seems like it could be um, has capacity to help absorb some of this extra labor from the youth. And I also, also try to fix the education system kinds of problems there Mm -hmm. but you know these students are very bright but they're prone to knowing how to take tests but have very little individuality and experience uh, that can distinguish them from one another that's the second thing and uh, the third and more difficult but you know ultimately critical thing is to how to manage expectations and confidence levels in China this is something that the Western government have taken a hundred years to not perfect because we still have that problem today, but they understand the consequences of bad communication or lack of communication or the the consequences of not being transparent and open about their policies. From a government perspective, you From mean? From a government perspective. I think about central banking and how much that has evolved. And so if you want to... Uh, create that kind of motivation for entrepreneurs. I think it's more important than the things we have discussed to create that kind of stability in the macro environment and that transparency and reliability, not erratic policy mm. changes going forward. Because it might have been okay, not too devastating, when China's old playbook was based on industrialization and building factories, where China's new playbook is about technology, a uh, knowledge economy, uh, let's say a more vibrant capital market and stock market capital. That all depends on government uh, transparency and communication.
0: Yeah. And I've heard the government talk about some of those things. For example, the youth unemployment is clearly something they're very worried about, but other things I've not heard them really talk about. So how optimistic are you that, you know, the the uh, (laughs) Koyujing diagnosis of the Chinese economy and the prescription going ahead is actually being taken up by people in government? Mm.
1: I think they have a lot of short-term economic pressures to deal with. So in that sense, it's good because they're going to reshift the priority back to the economy. Even though we hear a lot about security issues, I think it's just you know whatever priority is the rule of the day will depend on on the circumstances. So I think there will be a lot of attention on the economy in the next couple of years, at the very least. But I think that these longer-term reforms, while they're saying that they're continue to open up, which is which is the case, especially for financial institutions, is not necessarily uh, we're not gonna necessarily going to see lots of deep reforms because I think there is a political challenge with that, you know, you kind of to do the economic reforms, like reform the financial system, you have to cede more control and that's not in line with mm-hmm. the current party politics. I do think they care about the 600 million people who could be middle income, though. I think this is lifting something... Lifting up. Yeah, lifting. They will be very much focused on that. But How do you do that in the current environment? It's very, very difficult uh, unless you get the private sector to really do all of the work uh, you can't rely on the government to spend and to do that anymore so that's no longer an option um, so I just think that it's going to be trying to fix the short-term economy, but I'm not that optimistic about deep reforms. <laughs> well, even when this new generation comes through, do you think? New generation, I think, will be different, um, yeah. but that's going to take 10 years.
0: I'm intrigued that you say, you know, earlier in the podcast you said that this even when this new generation comes, you know, economic reform might come, but political system, they're going to keep the same system. It's just going to be priorities are different. Why do you think they will keep the same system?
1: Because I think... Even with a new generation, there is very little appetite for a radical overhaul of the system or of the society. Uh, We still have to recognize the Chinese people currently and pretty much into the future for a certain uh, amount of time desire stability. I mean, they've been educated by their parents about the importance of stability because of what they've seen through the Cultural Revolution and turmoil. And so this generation is still not ready for the experimental ideas that can lead to potential instability. And they also look at what are the alternatives outside and... I don't think if you ask the vast majority of the new generation, they don't think that the Western system is necessarily uh, suitable for China, Mm -hmm. again, rightly or wrongly, because they're observing what's going on outside. And of course, with a proper education domestically, they don't necessarily think like that. So um, I think there will be progress, but I don't think this will be the kind of radical progress as the West might want to see, but there could be better corporate governance, for one thing. There could be better, more civil liberties and rights the new administrative laws that give uh, the chance for people to push back on local governments and governments are already happening. We see lots of examples where the people push back on the government and they change. They do change. Again, not in fundamental ways, but if it's a bad policy about surveillance and they don't like it, they've made them change. And we'll see probably more of that and more accountability. And we'll probably see better rule of law. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the hope that is. But these are incremental improvements rather than seeing you know potential multi-party system etc
0: well okay um you know what, what you say about the opinions of these younger generation you know is something that anecdotally i have seen as well from from the people that i talk to whether it's my family or the, or the people i talk to through my reporting but i'm always cautious about kind of talking about the chinese people because you and i know that opinion polling in china is very hard to come by the accurate uh, comprehensive opinion polling so do you fear of, you know, falling into a middle income trap, as it were, but opinion trap, you know, of, of us not knowing actually what you know your migrant worker thinks or your, your average elder person or whatever it is, you know, outside of the major cities on the East Coast, which we're both from?
1: Well, I, I, I totally agree that there's so much heterogeneity in China that we can't really generalize. But I do think that there is a lot of reporting, opinion polls, and uh, data collection from the international institutions or through online. Lots of international sociologists and economists have done that. That pretty much, if they're satisfied with the representativeness of the data sample, um, I think it does tell you something. But just the vast difference. And here, it doesn't matter so much, you know, whether you're in a second, third tier city, but just the vast amount of difference with a Western same generation just goes to show you that the difference is potentially very significant on some of these opinions or values. I I have to say that I don't think that some of these values are hard sets in stone and mm. that they don't change. I think they are capable of evolving. I think there's a lot of evidence that the new generation uh, is more open-minded, more care about more diversity issues and social equity issues, and we see that. There's a consistency across all kinds of opinion polls and serious data collection, including things like the World Value Survey, right? So these values can evolve, but I think it's also really a bad assumption to make to say that somehow the western values are superior and that's what everybody wants if you actually went go to the second or third tier cities you would
0: get an even more stronger nationalistic view so keby that that leads me very nicely to my final question which is a slightly more personal one if you don't mind which is just that you know through everything that you're doing in your work through your book you're trying to portray to the west a different way of looking at china one that you think is more accurate and more fair now in the process of doing that you've courted some controversy you know you've had some critics who say that you're too sympathetic to the Chinese political system to the Chinese government what do you say to those critics who question the accuracy and fairness of your work as a result you know in China
1: I've had a huge problem there too because they call me too pro-west so that gets me to be roughly balanced I guess so, you see, this is exactly the problem that, uh, that you know people who are in between have, is when you want to show a different side of the other part of the world that gets underrepresented, you are being portrayed as someone that is siding with the other side. And just like I think there's a lot that China can learn from the West, and when I make these comments, they portray me as being too pro-West. And, of course, all of this is very emotionally charged, but what I want to do and what I do in the book is rely on data data and economic analysis for the most part. There are lots of things that are, can't be captured solely by data, but there's been a wealth of scholarly work on China and we want to know what the truth is, uh, whether if it's with the political agenda or not. And so I think the West has been very selective in terms of its reporting on China and what I want to do is to show there is a much more complex picture right? The good and the bad. And in the book, there are lots of criticisms against the Chinese policies and uh, the challenges and deficiencies. And especially going the new era, there's going to be a greater uncertainty as to whether China can overcome these challenges. But I think that by focusing so much on this reductionist views, we get China really, really wrong all the time. And, and that leads to misunderstandings that could be quite problematic, even potentially dangerous. So I'm happy to take these criticisms as long as, I think that there is still value to be contributed by showing this is the evidence, this is the reality, uh, this is how, where America and the West is strong, but this is where it's weak, and similarly for China.
0: Okay, Jane, thank you so much for giving me your
1: time today. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Cindy.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there.